Hello everyone, Nicholas here. This bonus episode is the first in our new classroom series. If you like what you hear, you can head on over to patreon.com forward slash furidashi and sign up at the $15 tier. At that level, you will also get access to our Discord server and to bonus content related to each lesson. And with that, you will also get access to our bi-weekly bonus episodes of the podcast, which are regularly available at the $5 tier. No matter which level you choose, we thank you for your support, and here's the first lesson. So, for some time now, we've been teasing new developments and our crack researchers at the Furidashi Institute for Advanced Studies. <laughs> I've assembled for you a brand new course on identity and character in video games. Uh, this course is designed to take you through a number of concrete examples and look at their theoretical underpinnings in order to examine important concepts in identity. In Unit 1, we'll consider it from the perspective of player determination. In Unit 2, we'll see how game worlds constrain the possible ways in which character can be expressed. And in the final unit, we'll try to figure out how these two seemingly opposed frames work with each other. Our hope is that, after finishing this course, you'll be able to take what you've learned to better analyze the games that are near and dear to you. I'll be your guide along the way. My name is Nicholas, and welcome to the first ever Furidashi Classroom. In this episode, we're talking about paper dolls, which is kind of a weird thing. I'm going to be making the argument that something most people think of as just an inventory management system in role-playing games is actually reflective of an underlying ideology that, while it's most apparent in RPGs, is not actually limited to them. So first, in game terms, we should probably talk about exactly what a paper doll is. The earliest example, at least to my knowledge, of the paper doll system in video games came in 1987's Dungeon Master. The game itself has most of what you would expect. Claustrophobic dungeon crawling mechanics you're probably already familiar with, uh, lumbering your way through an endless series of pixelated cubes. <laughs> but what we want to focus on here is a crude mock-up of the human body, segmented into distinct parts, that would come to rule not only how we think about gear in these games, but how we would think about you as the player character. Now in this framing, you're not a whole person, but rather an assemblage of bits. The human form is modular in an RPG. All the pieces you pick and choose add up to a sum. Well, they add up to something. So in a conventional RPG, you, you hit I on the keyboard <laughs> to bring up the inventory. Okay, you're going to find that most of my examples will be PC games. This isn't like a PC Master Race thing. It's just what I'm most familiar with. Anyway, you bring up your inventory and a secondary system appears. Here, you play a little mini game of moving tiles around until you max your stats or you cobble together the perfect outfit for standing around where a bunch of players have congregated. <laughs> just a peacock. Uh, so the logic underlying this inventory minigame is the suit of armor, which is a shell that divides the body up into distinct pieces for hands, legs, feet, head, chest, and so forth. And we call this display a paper doll because it's a lot, it's a lot like playing dress-up. You can mix and match pants, gloves, blouses, and pantaloons until you forge the perfect character, or... At least the best version of your character you can achieve given the limitations you have to deal with. 
And that, it's a lot like living under capitalism. <laughs> Such is the nature of most MMOs. <clears throat> but the segmentation of the body isn't just a fun diversion or a way of dealing with all the crap you pick up in-game. The division of the body is applied to the whole self, resulting in a modular identity. Now, video games did not invent this. In fact, Paper Doll Logic goes back at least as far as character sheets in tabletop role-playing games like, you know, Dungeons & Dragons or GURPS or whatever. The character sheet shows us precisely how this modularity isn't just about cool outfits or getting the highest power level of raid gear. There's a little box for everything, in fact. For race, which really ought to be species if you think about it. Class, alignment, uh, personal backstory, ideals, flaws, spells, equipment, saving throws. All of which you get to pick and choose or, you know, arrange as you see fit. Now, due to the technical limitations and accessibility, video games tend to be more limited in terms of what you're allowed to choose, since uh, more choice usually adds more complexity, which adds more bugs that game devs have to find and fix. However, this way of thinking is something video games retain from their pen and paper predecessors. Who you are is synonymous with the choices you make in-game. Now, okay, this time around, I've chosen Star Wars The Old Republic, or SOTOR, as our example, because it takes this paper doll conception of the self and runs with it. Arguably runs away with it. In typical Bioware fashion, you are given many choices. <laughs> so many choices. <laughs> and ever since the game switched to a free-to-play model in 2012, it makes you pay for those choices, often quite literally with real money. But it also makes you pay in the sense that your choices matter. They have a clear, if at the time only minuscule, effect on how the game will ultimately play out. And I chose SOTOR specifically instead of, say, Knights of the Old Republic or Dragon Age because those meaningful choices actually begin the moment you enter character creation. Ah, the last one to arrive is finally here. I hope you don't think you're special. It would be a shame if freedom went to your head. Or if you somehow got the idea you didn't need to pass your trials to become Sith. Lord Zash has tasked me with sorting through you, Refuse, to find one worthy of being her apprentice. And I intend to do just that. Give us a chance. We can prove ourselves. We'll just see about that. Now the rest of you gutter trash already know your trial. Get going while I bring our latecomer up to speed. Watch your back, friend. And don't worry. It'll be alright. He can't kill us all. Thanks. That means a lot coming from a beautiful girl. <laughs> You're cute. Just watch you don't get yourself killed. Now, slave, for your trial. You first have to pick a faction, uh, then a class, and by choosing a class, you have locked yourself into a particular storyline. Because in SOTOR, the narrative that coincides with your leveling experience is specific to the class, with fully voice-acted scenes and cinematic camera work. Normally, a game like this might have you start off in your own unique way, but will quickly shunt you into the same narrative experience as everyone else. Excuse me. I'm recording in the morning, and apparently I'm a gassy baby. Same narrative experience as everyone else, or 
at least a shared narrative with some subdivision of the other classes. Now, that's certainly how things work in, I don't know, like World of Warcraft or uh, Final Fantasy XIV. Nevertheless, SOTOR is not a fundamentally different creature. It simply takes the notion of choice in an RPG to the nth degree. And the branching paths the game offers you as choices are made possible by that underlying paper, do paper doll logic that sees the gameplay experience as something of an empty vessel into which you pour yourself, or, if you prefer, your fantasies of a self. Because, unless you're a supreme narcissist, most people don't try to reproduce themselves in games. The whole point is to have an experience different from your own. What's weird about this absolute modularity, though, is that it turns the identity of your avatar into something of a free-floating signifier. While on the one hand, what you do matters, what you do matters because your choices have an observable and tangible effect on gameplay. Who you are kind of doesn't matter. And identity normally implies a certain degree of fixity that so many choices actually erode. It's odd. You have to sacrifice a consistent, fleshed-out character in order for the game's choice economy to fully flower. Meet our newcomer, Fawn Alt. This is real Sith strength, and he will tear you apart and crush your bones, slaves. Look on him. No connections left in the world but pure Sith blood. This, this is Lord Zash's future apprentice, not filth like you. In Sotor, while your choice of faction, Sith Empire or Galactic Republic, pushes you into a certain set of character classes and narrative arcs, it doesn't to ape Yoda's famous line, forever dominate your destiny. This is because for each character you play, you can make choices that push you more toward the light or more toward the dark side of the force. Yes, you can. You, in game you can actually have a Sith sorcerer, dark and brooding in appearance, with seemingly evil force powers like purple lightning, while at the same time making choices that show you deep down to be selfless and sacrificing for the good of others. Which is kind of weird if you think about it. I mean, you might think if you were part of a powerful cabal committed to using the dark side to expand your space empire, uh, if your entire power structure were dependent upon your best and brightest systematically betraying and murdering each other to get ahead, that, you know, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> someone would notice how not only did you not torture that guy to get in the information you needed, you actually tried to save his life and said, whenever you do something selfless, the NPCs have this odd tendency to simply rationalize it away. Acolyte, you've arrived. And not a moment too soon. Hakan has given me very specific instructions. You were raised as a slave, but must discard those traits and learn to control others. And I have just the task for that end. Meet this driveling excuse for an acolyte. He will be your victim. I don't much like the sound of victim. I personally prefer the word subject myself. But most people can only comprehend my work in crass terms. A short while ago, there was what we call an unauthorized murder here in the Academy. A rivalry among apprentices resulted in death. Interrogate him. 
Make him tell you who committed this crime at any cost. I'll see what I can do, but I won't torture anyone. Already you are a disappointment to me, Acolyte. But Harkin said nothing of torture being a requirement, so I will not restrict you. If the Sith are, by and large, twisted and evil, the game cannot impose that worldview upon you because it would diminish the range of choices available to you. And meaningful choice, that my head's in scare quotes there, <laughs> is a hallmark of Bioware games. Limiting you in this way, even if it makes more sense of how things tend to work in the Star Wars canon, is antithetical not only to Bioware's stock and trade, but to the very modular paper doll logic that rules so many RPGs. Not only would it be nearly impossible to code both an elaborate system of narrative choices and the complex interplay with a larger worldview being imposed upon them, it would also run counter to how games conventionally conceptualize player characters in these types of games. And while this basic modularity potentially makes the game more engaging, there is a fundamental contradiction we have to deal with. So, The more possibilities you make available, the less the game world feels like a distinct place with a distinct character of its own. It becomes a kind of Star Wars sandbox where anything goes. Such marvelous power radiates from you now. Clear, strong, you have truly come into your own. I've arranged for you to receive the title of Lord of the Sith. I hope you realize what an honor and responsibility it is. As a Darth, I answer only to Darth Thanaton, who answers to the Dark Council. As a Lord, you're only one step below that, and you tower above many. The power is mine. Do not get ahead of yourself, Apprentice. There is still the ritual to undergo. And I'll warn you, the ritual may prove a trying experience. But once it's done, you will be truly great. Truly powerful. You still haven't told me what the ritual does. All in good time, Apprentice. First, there is something more pressing. The truth is, I have not been completely honest with you. I wish I could have been, but the timing was not right. Look at me, Apprentice. I am sorry to have concealed it from you for so long, but it was such a pleasant vanity to share in your youth. Why are you showing me this now? Listen, Apprentice. Various Force rituals have helped me maintain my appearance and some of my vitality. Inevitably, life fades. I'm dying, Apprentice. My will, my intellect, my spirit are as lively as ever. But this body is dying. Too bad you can't just order a new one. But Apprentice, that's exactly what I've done. Be prepared. As the ritual ends, you will likely see me collapse before you feel it taking effect. Do not panic. Know that this is what I have trained you for, primed you for, from the start. This doesn't sound promising. Don't worry. I imagine it will be just like falling asleep. <sighs> we will accomplish so much once I am in command of that wonderful vessel of yours. Just hold still. Don't get me wrong. 
I'm not trying to say that zone of free or freer play is a bad thing. As a game, SOTOR f works perfectly fine, and it's fun. I actually enjoy playing it. But what this analysis is meant to show is how a very common way of looking at character and identity in role-playing games actually narrows the horizon of what could be done in those games. So, strangely, you're being given a huge range of choices, but being given that range of choices is actually a conceptual narrowing of identity. And this poses an interesting series of questions then. So what would a game look like that offered both seemingly limitless possibilities, but also imposed a particular worldview upon them that made your character feel more grounded and whole, uh, less like the sum of so many bits? What kinds of systems and mechanics would that entail? Do those systems already exist, or would they need to be reconceptualized as well? Are there any games now that do this? As always with Furidashi, feel free to tell us why we're wrong on social media. And if you're signed up for the class on Patreon, hop into our Discord so we can hash this all out together. I'll be back next time to examine the recent game The Veil, Shadow of the Crown, in order to rethink what it means to gain experience. See you then.